So we're continuing with chapter two of part one of individuation in light of notions of form and information. So last week we saw the discussion of the crystallization allotropic forms of, of crystals. So um, sulfur, for example, has two different crystalline structures and one is more stable than the other in the sense that a crystal formed in one crystalline structure can be transformed into a crystal of the other form, but not vice versa. So one trans the one form turns into the other, but not in the other way around. And uh, this crystallization process is the, the sort of paradigm for physical individuation for Simondon. So that's always physical individuation is always a transformation of potential energy into structure, basically, so that an unstructured field or, or fluid or whatever it is appears. And so that's what we're going to be continuing on with today uh, and what that means for individuation. So I think we're at the top of 73, um, so I can start. And we're in the middle of one of these giant multi-page paragraphs, so I'll just read about a page and then we'll stop to discuss. In this sense, the individuality of a particular being rigorously includes the type as well as the characteristics capable of varying within a type. We should never consider a certain particular being as belonging to a type. The type is what belongs to the particular being just as much as the details that singularize it the most, since the existence of the type in this particular being results from the same conditions as those at the origin of the details that singularize the being. There are types because these conditions vary discontinuously by the limiting domains of stability, but because within these domains of stability certain parameters, which are part of the conditions, vary more finely, each particular being is different from a certain number of others. The original particularity of a being is not different in nature from its typological reality. The particular being does not possess its most singular characteristics any more so than its typological characteristics. Both the former and the latter are individual because they result from the encounter of energetic conditions and singularities, the latter of which are historical and local. If within the interior of the same domain of stability, conditions that are still variable are not capable of an infinity of values, but merely a finite number of values, it will have to be acknowledged that the number of effectively different beings able to appear is finite. In a certain quantity of substance, there could then be several identical beings that seem indiscernible. Certainly on the macrophysical level, we hardly ever encounter several indiscernible individuals, even in crystallization. Furthermore, a substance in crystalline supercooling ends up transforming into the stable form relative to which it is metastable. But we should not forget that if we find ourselves in the presence of a large quantity of elements, nothing can guarantee the absolute purity of an allotropic form. A certain number of germs of a stable allotropic form can exist within a substance that appears to have a single form. Particular local conditions can be equivalent to the structural germ, for example, a trace of chemical impurity. Ultimately, to consider a simple substance, we must therefore take the microscopic point of view. At this level, it seems that there can be veritable indiscernibles. So here we have um, continuing discussion from what we saw last week of um, the relationship between uh, individuation and species or between individual and species. Um, and uh, Simon Don criticizes um, in several places, in addition to this one, uh, the, the notion or the, the method of uh, classifying uh, entities by genus and species. Um, and so here, what he's criticizing is the um, the idea that um, we have to uh, abstract from the individual to um, arrive at a species, which would uh, be a certain number of properties, um, um, uh, like a, a bundle of shared properties between different individuals, and then abstract further to, to reach a genus and so on. Um, 
um, and he's, he argues instead that we should understand um, the different types of, um, for example, uh, stone um, uh, geological formations um, that you can, you can classify uh, by species and type, uh, species and genus. We should understand them instead in terms of um, the history of their formation. So um, uh, a certain type of lava flow will um, solidify in uh, a certain way um, so that you have uh, a certain crystalline structure or a certain mixture of different crystalline structures. Uh, and that's a historical particularity to that one particular lava flow. And so the properties of the entity are not, um, are not sort of um, generic or um, uh, abstractions from the individual, but they're part of what constitute the individual through its history. And so this, this um, paragraph here that we just read he, he's arguing that um, the typological characteristics, so the characteristics that make uh, this um, this entity belong to a certain type or a certain species, um, are not distinct from the uh, particular uh, characteristics that make it this one individual. Uh, so the the all of these characteristics are all the results of the historical process of, in, of physical individuation. But that also means that. Um, because there are only a finite number of, um, of different possible states that the physical individual can take on, um, that means that um, there can be indiscernibles at, the, at this level. Um, so uh, entities that would have the same properties um, that would not be physically distinct in that sense. Um, but we'll see um, more discussion of that as we continue. So I guess uh, one thing he's talking about here I mean, this discussion of types, um, it's reminding me of the, pro the, the, the problem of universals. And, uh, you know, I think that was big in medieval philosophy. Um, are there universals? And, you know, what are universals? And I guess another word for them would be form. Forms, types, universals, or species. Uh, like a kind of a one over many type of entity and it seems like he's saying here uh technically speaking there are no such things there are only particulars uh and sort of the the process of development of those particular, or kind of unfolding and genesis of those particulars um but then he he gives a very um you know a, a very kind of complicated picture of how these particulars develop and relate to one another. And I guess it seems like that could appear as if there were these types that were just kind of separate forms. Uh, but that's really not the case. Yeah. Um, I think, I think I would want to specify this in a slightly different way. Um, in the sense that, um, so it's not that types don't exist. Um, it's that types, uh, or, or species or, or forms or whatever you want to call them um, um, only exist um, through the particularity of the entities that uh, fall under those those species or types. Um, so uh, I'm just trying to find that quote here. Um, right, uh, so uh, at the top of 73, so the, in the, the bit that, that we just read, um, in this sense, the individuality of a, of a particular being rigorously includes the type as well as the characteristics capable of varying within a type. Um, 
so the the point here is is that um, there there isn't some sort of um, ontological distinction between the the type or species on the one hand and then the individual um, the particular properties the properties that are particular to that individual the variation within the type there isn't any um, sort of distinction uh, at the ontological in ontological status between those two um, sets of characteristics. Um, because that that type of um, distinction between species, uh, uh, the properties that that are characteristic of a species, and then the properties that are uh, particular to an individual, um, that distinction um, sort of aligns with the hylomorphic schema of form and matter. You have the form, which corresponds with the species, uh, humanity or or coarseness or whatever it is, and and that's imposed on a, a form. Uh, sorry, imposed on a matter that um, that uh, gives the, gives the particularity of that form, you know, this exact height and and weight and color and so on. Um, and uh, so, so Simon Don is is not so much um, saying that the there are no properties characteristic of a species, but rather that there's no um, ontological distinction between those properties and the properties that are uh, that make up the particularity of, of that uh, uh, individual. So it, all, all of the properties are the result of a process of individuation, um, a historical process that um, um, it, it's uh, localized in space and time. Um, um, and, and it has that evental character. So it's the result of uh, an encounter of some kind um, between uh, the the germ and the uh, conditions that um, uh, are sort of the background for the individuation process, um, and and the properties that uh, we can we can use some of those properties to classify entities into uh, species and genus and so on, um, but those properties are not um, ontologically distinct from the other properties that we don't use for that purpose. Um, so there's a, a sort of um, epistemological use of um, the concepts of species and genus, but um, it has no ontological um, uh, uh, status, I guess. And so the, the existence of types or the, the utility of classifying entities um, according to types or, or species and genus mm -hmm. has to do with uh, what we saw just at the end of last week, uh, the, the discontinuity of the, the states um, or discreteness of the the states in which um, individuation can result. Um, so in the case of the uh, sulfur, for example, there, there are only two crystalline structures that it can um, result in. So um, there's a discontinuity between those two different structures, uh, even though there's a transition from one to the other, um, the, the actual states themselves are discontinuous. There's no intermediate state. Um, and, uh, and so it's because um, different substances have uh, these finite sets of states that they can uh, uh, take on. Um, because of that, it, uh, it can be useful um, to classify entities in terms of uh, uh, species and genus, um, uh, you know, because they fall under one of these states or another. Um, but um, uh, that uh, classification is not um, is not uh, doesn't have an, an ontological status um, in the sense that um, those those states are not um, distinct from the uh, the other um, properties of the entity that are particular to one individual.
so that that makes sense to me yeah um i guess what i'm curious about so the reason types are usually introduced right uh as i as i understand it is to account for the similarity of things so if you know a number of indiv- a number of particulars have you know a certain quality let's say four legs and hoofs and uh you know a certain kind of tail and you know we call them horse and uh and, and i guess the kind of the the hypothesis is well there is this form right this sort of this similarity or this likeness that even precedes the individuals right that will be a kind of idealism and uh i guess what i'm struggling to understand uh in simondon's thinking what takes the form of that sort of universal likeness or similarity like so because it seems like we we can talk about types right and therefore there is like a meaningful similarity between things and it seems like he would want to cash that out in terms of structure in terms of you know these discrete um structurations uh that give you know give um uh that individuate the meta the meta stable pre-individual um but i'm not i'm i guess i'm not seeing like how is that just not pushing the problem one step further you know how can we speak of similarity of structure and uh you know like this platonic sort of questioning just keeps re-emerging it seems to me and uh, anyway we don't have to like belabor this too much but i'm having um I'm having that question. Actually, I have similar questions too. Because uh, one, two, three, four, five, six is line. It says we should never consider a certain particular being as belonging to a type. So, in a way, I'm thinking like it's like inductive reasoning or Simong Dung is a lay emphasis on conditions. Like a which he could make a variables of being. So instead of classifying or defining, designating some particular type according to the interaction with conditions, there could be numerous, numerous types of being possible. Yeah, I think, um, um, Al Dreams, I think that's a good way of putting the question and, um, um, or it's a good question to, to pose to, to Simon Dong. Um, um, and I think, um, Ali, I think you're right to compare this to an inductive mode of reasoning, um, in the sense that we start rather than, um, starting from something general and then deducing downwards to the particular uh, case we were starting from uh, the particular um, and then uh, extracting the, the the types from it um, but the the difference here uh, the reason why this is not exactly um, not exactly the same type of procedure as uh, inductive reasoning is that uh, in inductive reasoning you have um, um, a complementarity between uh, the comprehension and the extension of concepts. So the, the more um, 
content that a concept has or the more um, the richer the concept is, the more properties you, uh, you're attributing uh, through the use of that concept, then the fewer entities it, uh, it uh, holds of. Um, um, and then conversely, uh, a concept that applies to more entities will be um, will have uh, less content, will be less rich or, or less um, determined. Um, so in the same way that horse um, has more content than mammal, it's uh, it, it uh, you're attributing more properties to an entity when you call it a horse than when you call it a mammal. Uh, and then, but at the same time, mammal covers more entities than horse does. Um, and so the in inductive mode of reasoning um, always uh, um, uh, it has that uh, complementarity between extension and uh, and uh, um, and uh, content um, of a concept. Um, and what we're doing here, or what Simon Don is is describing here, is is not quite the same um, procedure of, of uh, uh, abstraction and generalization um, because. So uh, that line that, that you quoted there, where he says, we should never consider a certain particular being as belonging to a type. Um, what, he, what he goes on to say right after is, the type is what belongs to the particular being, just as much as the details that singularize it the most. Since the existence of the type in this particular being results from the same conditions as those at the origin of the details that singularize the being. So um, it's a, a, an inversion of perspective, I guess we can say is that, um, um, Rather than um, uh, abstracting from uh, the details of the entity um, to to uh, produce a general concept that covers more entities, um, what we're looking at is the um, which properties uh, have this um, discreteness to them. Um, the the they uh, exist only in, in a finite discrete number of of states. Um, like the, the crystalline structure of uh, sulfur, for example, whereas other properties have a, a continuous or at least a, a more finely grained variation. Uh, and then those ones can, can characterize an entity um, as uh, a, a particular. Um, so it's uh, um, rather than abstracting from uh, certain properties to, uh, to um, account for uh, or to um, produce a general concept, what we're doing is looking at the properties and seeing which ones um, have this discreteness to them uh, and, and therefore can be used for uh, typology or for um, defining types of entities. And then which ones have this property of um, fine-grainedness or, or continuity um, which means that they they can account for the uh, particularity of individual entities. Uh, so that, that was sort of a long answer, but um, I, I think that's why what what Simon Don wants to do is is different than um, uh, a purely inductive um, approach to concept formation. Uh, I got an idea. I, uh, at the end of the day, Simon Don wanted to uh, guide us to trans transductive reasoning. I'm happy to read the parts like uh, he concretized like inductive reasoning, but at the end of the day, he would he will emphasize uh, the process of so-called transduction, because because inductive reasoning plus 
Oh, we lost you again. Um, so, sorry, he will lead us to the transductive reasoning. I think we lost you again. Um, you got to hold down that button. Uh, I, I just said like uh, this part concretize. He uh, someone to concretize the process, the process of induction reasoning. But at the end of the day, he would lead us to the process of a transductive reasoning. So um, it's kind of like a come and go, come and come and go on and off, like uh, the process of between um, the. The, 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 the deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning and then at the all together transductive reasoning something like that yeah I think um, that's what I was trying to um, characterize uh, um, without using that term but yes uh, transductive reasoning is, is the type of thinking that that Simon Don um, is, tries to set out in this book uh, as a whole um, and uh, so that that um, Distinction from from uh, inductive reasoning in the sense that it doesn't um, it doesn't have this um, uh, abstraction from the particular um, so that, that's one of the characteristics of transductive reasoning is, is that it, it doesn't proceed through this um, um, uh, abstraction uh, from the particular this reduction of the comprehension uh, as the extension uh, grows. Um, but uh, another characteristic of transductive thinking is precisely that it's um, uh, ontological at the same time as epistemological, so that uh, the transduct transduction characterizes both our thinking and uh, the entities themselves, the, the individuation or the genesis of the entities. Um, so it's the same process going on in our thinking as in the entities. Um, and uh, and so here we're looking at it in this uh, passage that we're reading. We're looking at the um, transductive process uh, going on in uh, entities, um, and uh, um, the the mode of thinking uh, should correspond with that. Um, and so that's another reason why we we don't want to use um, classification uh, into species and genus because it, it doesn't correspond to the the genesis of the entities uh, in the same way. Yeah, thank you, thank you. That's that helps me to understand. Thank you. Just a quick follow up. I think this is a really important point. Um, and uh, Nan, just wanted to clarify something that you uh, you were talking about discreteness and continuity earlier, and uh, it sounded like you were saying discreteness accounts for the types generality, whereas continuity accounts for the singularity of of an individual. Is that is that on the right track? Uh, yes, I think yeah, I, I would say that's that's on the right track. Um, but the way I would um, uh, specify it is, or the way I would um, want to put it is that um, what we what we're doing when we attribute a type to an entity, um, uh, or the validity of that operation, um, why why it has um, value to try to um, uh, uh, predicate a, a type of an entity is because um, certain properties have that discreteness um, to them that they only take on a certain finite number of, sta of states um, uh, and then um, the other side is the, the other properties have this uh, continuity or at least a, a finer grain than uh, than the the first ones um, 
and and so we can account for um, the particularity uh, of entities using these um, fine-grained uh, properties. Um, but the the what what we have to avoid is um, setting up some sort of ontological distinction between these two types of properties, um, as 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 though um, uh, entities um, uh, have have the the discrete properties sort of um, uh, um, imposed on them from without or something like that, rather than just seeing certain properties. Um, seeing all of the properties as uh, the result of the historical process of individuation and then um, some of those properties being uh, discrete and others being continuous. But I think we should uh, go on so we don't uh, get stuck on, on one passage for uh, the, whole, um, the whole session today. Um, so if someone else would like to read the next couple paragraphs. At the level where individuality seems to be the least accentuated in the allotropic forms of the same element, it is not merely linked to the identity of a substance, the singularity of a form, or the action of a force. A pure substantialism, a pure theory of form, or a pure dynamism would be equally powerless facing the necessity of accounting for physico-chemical individuation. To seek the principle of individuation in matter, form, or force is to be condemned to only explaining individuation in these seemingly simple particulars, like, for example, that of the molecule or the atom. Instead of constituting the individual's genesis, this would be to suppose this genesis as already formed in the formal, material, or energetic elements, and due to these elements already harboring individuation, to generate through composition and individuation that is in fact simpler. This is why we have not wanted to undertake the study of the individual by beginning with the elementary particles so as to mistake such a complex case as being simple. We have chosen the most precarious aspect of individuation as the first term of the examination. And from the very beginning it has seemed to us that this individuation was an operation resulting from the encounter, encounter and compatibility between a singularity and an energetic and material conditions. The name allegmatic could be given to such a genetic method that seeks to grasp individuated beings as a singularity that unifies on an intermediate order of magnitude the overall energetic conditions and material conditions. In fact, we should note that this method does not involve a pure causal determinism through which a being would be explained when its genesis in the past would have to be accounted for. In fact, the being extends time in the meeting of the two groups of conditions that it expresses. It is not just the result, but also the agent, both the milieu of this meeting and the extension of this realized compatibility. In terms of time, the individual is not in the past, but in the present, for it only continues to conserve its individuality to the extent that this uh, constitutive combination of conditions persists in and is extended by the individual itself. The individual exists such that the mixture of matter and energy that it constitutes, is, that constitutes it is in the present. This is what could be called the active consistency of the individual. This is why every individual can be a condition of becoming. A stable crystal can be the germ for a metastable substance in a state of crystalline or, or liquid supercooling. 
Dynamism alone cannot account for individuation because dynamism wants to explain the individual through a single fundamental dynamism. Yet the individual doesn't just harbor a hylomorphic encounter. It stems from a process of amplification unleashed in a hylomorphic situation by a singularity. And it extends this singularity. We could just as legitimately call a hylomorphic situation that in which there is a certain quantity of matter grouped into subsets of a system isolated with respect to one another, or a certain quantity of matter in which the energetic conditions and spatial distribution are such that the system is in a metastable state. The state containing forces of tension, a potential energy, can be called the system's form. Insofar as its dimensions, its topology, and its internal isolations are what maintain these forces of tension. A form is the system as far as it is macrophysical and insofar as it is a reality that envelops a possible individuation. Uh, matter is the system envisioned at the microphysical molecular level. Should I read this next small paragraph to you? Yeah, sure. Okay. A hylomorphic situation is a situation in which there is nothing but form and matter and therefore two levels of reality without communication. Uh, the establishment of this communication between levels with energetic transformations is the initiation of individuation. It supposes the appearance of a singularity, which could be called information and which either comes from the outside or is subjacent. Right, so here in this passage, we have, uh, I think this is the first time that he uses the term allegmatic, um, uh, or, or uh, if it's not the first time, it's at least one of the first times and, and where he um, sets out the meaning of the term uh, as well. So let me just find that passage again uh, here, um, about a third of the way down on 74. Um, the name allegmatic could be given to such a, ge a genetic method that seeks to grasp individuated beings at the development of a singularity that unifies on an intermediate order of magnitude, the overall energetic conditions and material conditions. Um, and then uh, extending from there. Um, but yeah, so that allegmatic method um, um, has to do with um, uh, grasping um, an entity uh, through, its, um, uh, uh, through its process of individuation um, resulting from the uh, encounter between a singularity and um, the energetic and material conditions, um, and then the the formation of an intermediate order of magnitude between those those two. Um, um, so the the, the allegmatic method. Um, I'm not sure if we should take allegmatic method and transductive method as synonymous, or if one is a, a subset of the other. That would be something interesting to. Uh, to look at um, um, as we continue reading, um, but um, obviously they're obviously related um, in terms of uh, um, the concept of, of, of the one and the other. Um, yeah, for allegmatic, we can read uh, genetic, um, I think, as a, a synonym as well. And then we also have here um, some discussion of time again, which um, came up in the introduction to the, the work. Um, and the, the notion that individuation is always in the present um, um, or, or more um, even further, he, he thinks that individuation is what constitutes the present. So time is uh, the result of individuation rather than being um, sort of the, the form in which individuation occurs. Um, 
And um, uh, so in the case of physical individuation, the, the actual process of individuation is a relatively short time. Uh, there's a, a relatively short um, individuation process. And then uh, afterwards, we have a, an individual as a result, which um, um, is, is uh, sort of dead in that sense. It's, uh, it can only degrade in terms of individuality from there. Um, but when we get to vital individuation, we'll see um, that uh, it consists in, or one of, its, one of its essential properties is that the individuation process is um, uh, extended um, so that a living being is always in, in the process of individuating itself. Um, and uh, um, so it's always in the present in that sense, whereas um, a physical individual um, has a relatively brief present and then it exists in the past um, in, in the sense that it, it's no longer individuating. Something I'm wondering about this passage is, I guess it's the connection, relationship, Simon, his thinking to uh, this larger theory. Um, because it seems to me like he is like he's not a structure, right? That would not be a a good way of characterizing him. And I'm wondering if these comments he makes here about um, pure determinism um, they may be in some way uh, about about natural, you know, different structuralism. Uh, because. One thing I understand, I mean, structuralism, I guess, is really broad. It's a broad term, kind of vague. Uh, but um, in my understanding, one aspect of it was determinism um, of, you know, these structural laws, whether they're linguistic or whether... Yeah, and I know in Deleuze, this question comes up, you know, how the Simondonian way of thinking brought in, uh, brought together with structuralism. But I guess I'm curious what... Um, Simondon's own stance was, because that was very much, you know, it was very much the prevalent way of thinking. In yeah, that would be an interesting question to look into more, um, what relationship, what the relationship is between Simondon and structuralism. Um, I think, uh, in just in terms of chronology, I think this book is like a little bit before structuralism sort of uh, takes over in, in France. Um, like, uh, so this is 1960, I believe, um, is when, or sorry, the, um, you know, this book has a, a sort of a strange publication history, but the first part of the book was published in 1960, I think. Um, 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 but uh, it's only a little bit later that, that we start seeing, like, um, Lacan's Écrit is uh, 1966, um, and that becomes like a, a bestseller for some strange reason. Um, and uh, um, uh, I'm just trying to think of Lady Strauss. I can't remember the, the timeline for some of his writings. Um, um, but um, uh, yeah, so it's, I think in sort of like the mid 60s that um, structuralism starts to become really um, predominant within the French Academy. Um, I'm not sure when he talks about determinism here, uh, I'm not sure if he has in mind something like structuralism. I think he's thinking more of a physical determinism. Um, so uh, um, uh, an account of um, 
physical reality that would um, that would say that um, the present is determined by the past. Uh, um, so once you have the the past conditions, then that would explain the the uh, the present, and and there would be no um, uh, there would be no need there'd be nothing like a um, a genesis of the present or or um, the the genesis of, of novelty in the present. Um, whereas Simon Don wants to um, uh, oppose to that conception, um, instead a conception in which um, um, the the process of genesis or the process of individuation is um, a, a, a development of novelty. Um, so there's uh, um, something like an invention in individuation, um, which is um, sort of attenuated at, at the level of physical individuation, but is much more present at the level of vital individuation. Um, so that living beings are, are um, inventive um, in the sense, not, not just at the level of behavior, but at the level of um, um, their, their physiology as well. Um, um, so yeah, there's, there's uh, 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 an opposition uh, between this uh, physical determinism, like the Laplace type of uh, account where you can um, predict the future um, based on the past uh, if you have a precise enough um, 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 measurements of the past conditions. Um, um, he, he wants to oppose that conception to a conception in which there is this uh, a, a true present uh, or a true um, uh, creation of novelty in the present, um, an inventiveness of individuation. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next um, long paragraph, which is uh, another one of these ones that was uh, cut out of the, um, public, the initial publication of, uh, of the book, um, of the first half of the book. Um, so remember, the, this was originally Simonon's thesis, and then the first half was published, uh, I think, 1960. I'd have to check that. Um, and then uh, the second half was published in 1989. And then it was only only in 2005 that the whole thing was published together, um, along with the uh, complementary um, texts in the second volume of the translation. But yeah, so we can we can go on to the, the next paragraph if someone else would like to read. However, the individual conceals two fundamental dynamisms, one of which is energetic and the other of which is structural. The individual's stability is the stability of their association. Right away, the following question can then be posed concerning the degree of reality such an investigation could lay claim to. Should we consider such an investigation to be capable of attaining and grasping a real? Or is this sort of investigation not, on the contrary, subjected to this relativity of knowledge that seems to characterize the experimental sciences? In order to respond to this need for examination, it is necessary to distinguish the knowledge of phenomena from the knowledge of the relations between states. Relativistic phenomenalism is perfectly valid to the extent that it indicates our incapacity to absolutely know a physical being, at least without recreating its genesis and relative to the manner in which we know or believe to know the subject and the isolation of self-consciousness. But what remains at the basis of the critique of knowledge is this postulate that being is fundamentally substance, i.e. in itself and for itself. 
The critique of pure reason is essentially addressed to the substantialism of Leibniz and Wolf. Through the latter, this postulate affects all substantialisms and those of Descartes and Spinoza. In the Kantian noumenon is not unrelated to the substance of rationalist and realist theories. But if we refuse to admit that being is fundamentally substance, the analysis of the phenomenon can no longer lead to the same relativity. The conditions of sensory experience indeed prevent a knowledge of physical reality through intuitional. But we cannot deduce as definitively as Kant a relativism of the existence of a priori forms, sensibility. If noumena are indeed not pure substance, but also consist of relations, like exchanges of energy or passages of structures from one domain of reality to another domain of reality. And if relation has the same status of reality as the terms themselves, as we have tried to show in the preceding examples, insofar as relation is not an accident relative to a substance, but a constitutive, energetic, and structural condition that is extended in the existence of constituted beings, then the a priori forms of sensibility that allow us to grasp relations because they are a power of organizing according to succession or according to simultaneity do not create an irremediable relativity of knowledge. If relation effectively has the value of truth, then both the relation within the subject and the relation between the subject and the object can have the value of reality. True knowledge is a relation, not a simple formal rapport comparable to the rapport of two figures between them. True knowledge is knowledge that corresponds to the greatest possible stability in the given conditions of the subject-object relation. There can be different levels of knowledge, just as there can be different degrees of stability of a relation. There can be a type of knowledge that is the most stable possible for a certain subjective condition in a certain objective condition. If a later modification of subjective conditions, for example, the discovery of new mathematical relations, or objective conditions turns up, the old type of knowledge can become metastable with respect to a new type of knowledge. The rapport of the inadequate to the adequate is in fact that of the metastable relative to the state. Truth and error are not opposed as two substances, but are opposed as a relation enveloped in a stable state to a relation enveloped in a metastable state. Knowledge is not a rapport between an object substance and a subject substance, but a relation between two relations, one of which is in the domain of the object and the other of which is in the domain of the subject. Yeah, sorry, I'm just... Uh... Uh, going back through the uh, the text a little bit, um, but uh, yeah. So what we have here is um, uh, an epistemolo epistemological reflection on what we've just seen uh, in the text, um, and um, a a um, rejection of um, a phenomenalist or uh, Kantian epistemology. Um, so the when he when he talks about phenomenalism here, he he's talking about um, 
there were a number of early 20th century philosophers who, who argued that um, we can only have relative knowledge of phenomena um, because we can only um, we can only understand uh, we we can only um, sort of measure or um, map the uh, uh, relations between the phenomena, but we can never um, have a, a sort of absolute um, knowledge of what those phenomena are, uh, of what the uh, entities are themselves. Um, so we, we have our sensations and then we can um, generate laws that allow us to predict the evolution of those sensations. And so we can um, understand the relations between entities through those laws, but we can't um, have any um, absolute knowledge of what those entities are in themselves. Uh, and so it's this type of argument that, um, that Simon Dong is, is criticizing here. Um, um, and, and so he argues that that type of um, uh, relativism or relativistic phenomenism, phenomenalism, um, it um, presupposes that entities are, are substances, that is that they have a, a, a self-subsistent existence. They, they exist um, in themselves um, and uh, relation is something secondary um, or that um, uh, is is not a fundamental property of those entities. It's external to their their being. Um, and then he wants us to um, reframe our understanding of epistemology, our understanding of knowledge, um, by setting relation at the level of uh, as having uh, the status of being. Um, so that uh, relation is constitutive of the being of the entities that we um, want to know. And then uh, if, we, if we reframe our understanding of knowledge in that sense, um, then knowledge is one relation uh, among others. Um, um, so there's a relation between the subject and object uh, that we call knowledge. Um, uh, and then that relation uh, can itself be um, it can be in a metastable or a stable state. So it can, um, it can be either, um, uh, it can be such that it um, has to undergo transformation or it's, it's susceptible of undergoing transformation um, if it's in a metastable state, or it can be such that it is not susceptible of um, undergoing transformation. Because, because knowledge is one relation uh, and relation have, has the status of being, um, knowledge, uh, True knowledge, uh, as he characterizes it, is um, is uh, uh, something that that has the status of being, um, and so it's not uh, purely relative. It's not outside of the being of the entities known uh, in in the, the way that uh, phenomenalism uh, represented it. Um, it's actually knowledge is um, uh, part of the being of the of the entities known, or or of the the total situation. Uh, uh, encompassing both the, the knowing subject and the object known. Um, no comments on this. this. I thought this was a, uh, a particularly um, striking passage in the book, but uh, no one else has any thoughts or questions or, or comments. Well, it's definitely very juicy. I'm, uh, I don't know if it's just me, but I found it really difficult to parse. And it also, it also seems like he's saying something really important here because um, this... Uh, relation of relations seems to me like an important point and uh if i remember correctly actually it's um i have this vague sense of having seen that expression in merleau ponty 
Right, so just the last sentence. Knowledge is not a rapport between an object substance and a subject substance, but a relation between two relations. And it seems to me that he is looking for relativity, perhaps without the rel without a relativism, if that's if that's a way of putting it. Yeah, um, I'm not sure about Maclaurin um, Ponty um, whether whether this could be borrowed from from him or not. Um, I, I would have to. That's something that um, uh, I have to like look up and, and investigate more. Um, but um, yeah, relativity without relativism. Um, uh, I think it would be one way of, of characterizing uh, what he wants to do, um, because he, um, the um, our knowledge is is relative in the sense that um, it uh, it is a relation. Um, knowledge is a relation, but it's not relative in the sense that that relativity would be opposed to absolute knowledge um, or knowledge uh, of entities as they are in themselves. Um, so he wants to um, reframe our understanding of knowledge um, rather than rather than being um, uh, something external, uh, which uh, uh, sort of puts into conjunction the subject and the object as two uh, independent substances. We we have to re reframe our understanding of knowledge so that we understand it as being. Um, uh, constitutive of the being of the total system, which includes both the subject and the object, um, so that uh, uh, the relation. And then uh, the the second sort of stage of, of the the argument uh, or of the conception that he's presenting here is that um, once we reframe uh, our understanding of knowledge in that way, then we we don't we don't see truth and error as two. Um, uh, sort of opposed uh, substances or two opposed states, um, but we understand the um, the passage from error to truth as a passage from uh, a metastable state to a stable state. Um, so true knowledge is knowledge that um, that has that quality of stability, um, or it, it's a relation that that is in a stable state, um, and uh, and so. It um, allows us to grasp uh, the the dynamism of knowledge, I guess we could say, or or the 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 way that knowledge passes from a, an inadequate to an adequate state uh, or or condition. Um, so yeah, so that's the the, the second um, sort of reframing uh, that he wants us to operate. So uh, please help me to clarify. Like, um, if you go back to Early, early part of 75, I think that has to do, uh, yeah, the, the, there is a part like hylomorphic, yeah, the, there is like 75, so hylomorphic situation, as far as I understand, right, it has to do with the Aristotle concept, like the matter, matter and the form, uh, the ensemble of the matter and form fixed. And then Simongdon's position is against that, right? And then Simongdon's position is also against uh, some kind of idea flow of the Kant and life needs and so on. So what he what he emphasizes is like a relation, and um, uh, through the relation, um, something new continue to be generated. So that's why knowledge is not the only one. It continues to, to be changing, something like that. 
But to be brief, Simongdong's position is against absolute, against Aristotle position and the Kantian position, Lebanese, and then things like that. It's kind of a ignorant question. Yeah, I think it's um, uh, it's helpful to uh, to point back towards that passage about hylomorphism because uh, the Kantian uh, epistemology, in particular, is is um, a hylomorphic epistemology. Uh, it's it's articulated in terms of um, matter uh, coming through the senses, uh, being having a, a form imposed on it um, from the understanding. Um, so knowledge uh, knowledge is always consists of a, a matter and form combination um, for Kant, um, and so in the same way that. Um, that Simon Don criticizes the hylomorphic schema um, when it comes to physical individuation. Um, likewise, we we shouldn't um, apply a hylomorphic schema uh, in uh, in epistemology uh, in our understanding of knowledge. Um, so we should uh, rather than having some uh, conception of um, uh, forms uh, being imposed on matter. Uh, in in knowledge or or uh, forms being imposed on the, the sensory data or something like that, um, we have uh, we should have an understanding of um, the the genesis of uh, uh, of knowledge um, as a, as a relation between subject and object um, which has the status of being. Um, so it's the the genesis of knowledge is um, a, a process of individuation going on in the total system in which the subject and object exist. Um, so it's uh, uh, knowledge has the status of being as well. Um, and uh, because of that, it's not um, um, there. We don't have this problem or this uh, um, worry that uh, the forms that we impose on uh, on um, the matter of knowledge um, are in some sense um, uh, relative to us, um, um, we instead uh, understand knowledge as being uh, a process occurring within uh, the real, uh, within reality. Something I'm wondering about is this uh, distinction that he starts out the paragraph with between the energetic and the structural. Um, I guess I want to try to interpret that, but it's it's hard to even know where to start. I guess energetic is connecting with, I um, mean, we've talked about potential energy quite a bit, and it seems to me like um, maybe energetic is on the side of pre-individual uh, or on the side of, you know, a, a kind of potential that hasn't yet been actualized. And then the structure seems to be perhaps that in with the, the individuated um you know the, I guess the the concrete individualization that's resulted from a process of genesis. So, um, so so energy, as it were, kind of pours itself out or works itself out in a structure. And then, if uh, I think you were saying earlier, if no energy is left, um, all of it's individuated. Then we have a we have a complete individuation. But at that point, it seems the thing starts to recede into the past. It's no longer actively in process. Uh, I guess on the other hand, if all we have is energy and no structure, 
we have a kind of pure potential. And uh, I don't know, maybe that's that's to be connected with the future in some sense, you know, like open possibilities and that sort of thing. Um, so that's how I'm parsing that, but I'm, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I don't know if that's, you know, um, if those are, that's exactly the right, those are the right terms. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Um, um, and so that, that passage, that, that first line of the paragraph, um, however, the individual conceals two fundamental dynamisms, one of which is energetic and the other of which is structural. Um, that line points back to the, the, um, the previous paragraph and the one before it. Um, so um, in, in those two paragraphs, he, um, um, he uh, criticizes um, uh, the hylomorphic schema for having uh, for accounting for only the one um, side of uh, uh, the single fundamental dynamism, as, as he puts it, um, at the bottom of 74. Um, so that uh, the hylomorphic schema only deals with the um, uh, the the what he he calls here the hylomorphic encounter. So the the relationship between a a, a microphysical um, condition of the system, uh, which we call matter, and a macrophysical structure, which we call uh, form. Uh, so the hylomorphic schema only deals with that side, um, but um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't deal with the um, um, the the other side, which is the uh, the formation of um, uh, of the structure through the uh, the the interaction of those two uh, levels or two orders of magnitude, um, and and that's the uh, the dark zone of the hylomorphic schema uh, is that that intermediate uh, order of magnitude. Um, so I think that's sort of what he's um, pointing to with with those two fundamental dynamisms. Um, but the uh, the transition from from that to the next um, the the epistemological reflection is a little bit um, loose. I think it's not it's not um, uh, it's not uh, a very uh, tight transition. So, Nan, are you suggesting that um, this micro and macro align to some extent to the energetic and the structural, uh, or are they kind of orthogonal, like the the two distinctions? Yeah, I was just going to add uh, it because we we have seen before this uh, interplay between the disparate levels, right? The the macro and the micro, and that seems to play a role, um, I guess, in in individuation itself. It seems to be a kind of a kind of the, the dynamic in some sense of individuation. But but yeah, I was wondering if if you see those as aligned. Um, I think I think they're sort of uh, orthogonal to each other um, in the sense that, um, so the, the energetic dynamism, so he says there's two fundamental dynamisms, one is energetic and the other is structural. Um, so the energetic dynamism, uh, if we go back to the, the preceding paragraph, he, he or he, he says energetic transformations there. Um, so this is the, the hylomorphic schema, um, the, the way that, um, or the hylomorphic situation, I, I think, would be uh, more precise. Um, so it's the way that um, uh, we have these two um, orders of magnitude uh, without communication between them initially, 
uh, and then we have the um, establishment of that communication, um, which is the the initiation of individuation. Um, so again, this is this is like the the example of the brick. Um, you have the the order of magnitude of the the molds, uh, and then you have the order of magnitude of the clay, and then you uh, impose the you uh, pack the the clay into the mold, um, and that institutes the communication between the two orders of magnitude. But he he says so. This is only one of the fundamental dynamisms: is that relationship between the microphysical and the macrophysical, or between the the two orders of magnitude. And then the other um, the other fundamental dynamism of individuation is the structural one. So this has to do with the crystallization example. Um, so it's um, the the way that um, the the unindividuated or the pre-individual comes to be structured. Um, uh, through this transductive process um, or or this uh, structuration process, and uh, and then he, he he goes on to say that the individual stability is the stability of their association. So there's um, um, there's some sort of um, relationship between these two dynamisms or these two different forms of individuation that um, uh, uh, constitutes. Um, the the stability of an individual, um, so the persistence of an individual through time. Uh, yes, um, I can read the next uh, paragraph, um, which I think takes us to the end. Yes, the end of the of the section. The epistemological postulate of this study is that the relation between two relations is itself a relation. Here we take the word relation in the sense defined above, which, opposing relation to the simple rapport, gives it the value of being. For relation persists in being that the condition of stability and defines their individuality as re resulting from an operation of individuation. If this postulate of the method of the study of constitutive relations is accepted, it then becomes possible to understand the existence and validity of an approximate knowledge. Approximate knowledge is not completely different from exact knowledge. It is merely less stable. Every scientific doctrine at any moment can become metastable with respect to a doctrine that has become possible due to a change in the conditions of knowledge. This, however, does not mean that the preceding doctrine should be considered false. It is also not logically negated by this new doctrine. Its domain is merely submitted to a new structuration that leads it to stability. This doctrine is neither a form of pragmatism nor a new logical empiricism, for it does not suppose the usage of any criterion external to this relation that knowledge is, like intellectual utility or vital motivation. No commodity is required to validate knowledge. It is neither nominalist nor realist, for nominalism or realism can only be understood in doctrines that suppose that the absolute is the highest form of being and in doctrines that attempt to conform all knowledge to the knowledge of the substantial absolute. This postulate that being is the absolute underpins the dispute over universals conceived as a critique of knowledge. However, Abelard has fully perceived the possibilities of separating the knowledge of terms from the knowledge of relation. Despite the unintelligent jokes to which he has been submitted, he has brought forth with this distinction an extremely fruitful principle that takes on its full meaning with the development of the experimental sciences. Nominalism for the knowledge of terms, realism for the knowledge of relation. This is the method that we can gain from Abelard's teaching in order to apply it to uh, apply it by universalizing it. This realism of relation can thus be grasped as the postulate of research. If this postulate is valid, it is legitimate to ask the analysis of a particular point of the experimental sciences to reveal us reveal to us what physical individuation is. The knowledge that these sciences give us is in fact valid as knowledge of relation and can only give to philosophical analysis a being consisting in relations. But if the individual is precisely such a being, this analysis can reveal it to us. 
one could object that we are seeking a particular case and that the reciprocity between the epistemological postulate and the known object prevents legitimizing this arbitrary choice from outside. But we specifically believe that every thought, precisely to the extent that it is real, is a relation, i.e. includes a historical aspect in its genesis. A real thought is self-justifying, but not justified before being structured. It includes an individuation and is individuated, thereby possessing its own degree of stability. In order for a thought to exist, it requires not just a logical condition, but also a relational postulate that allows for its genesis to be completed, to be accomplished. If we can resolve other problems in other domains with the paradigm that the notion of physical individuation constitutes, we could consider this notion as stable. If not, it will merely be metastable, and we will define this metastability with respect to the more, the more stable forms we could have discovered. It will then conserve the prominent value of an elementary paradigm. Um, so again, we're continuing with epistemology in this paragraph. Um, and uh, we see here um, some discussion of the nominalism versus realism uh, debate that uh, we talked about a little bit earlier um, in our discussion. Um, so um, again, this was uh, a medieval uh, a debate within medieval philosophy um, as to um, whether something like forms had or, or ideas or, or universals um, had uh, existence independent of the particulars in which they uh, inhere. Um, and uh, so Simon Don um, characterizes his position as neither nominalist nor realist. Um, and then he goes on a little bit later to say, um, to describe it as a nominalism for the knowledge of terms and realism for the knowledge of relation. And uh, um, so I think how we should understand that or um, how we can interpret what that, that means is that um, we, we understand um, um, entities uh, through that, uh, that relationship, that, re that relation of, of knowledge, um, uh, or to put it another way, um, knowledge itself is a relation uh, in being. Um, and, and so the, the, the process of, um, of, of knowledge, of the, the development of knowledge um, is uh, self-justifying in that sense because it, um, it uh, insofar as it reaches a, a stable state, um, it, it is not subject to further transformation. Um, and uh, um, so in that sense, because knowledge is... Uh, uh, constitutive of being uh, of the total system, um, then we we don't have this um, worry or this problem of um, uh, whether we can know entities uh, as they are in themselves, um, whether that be um, particulars or universals. Um, it's it's in our knowledge or, or in that knowledge relationship that uh, particulars and and universals both. Um, uh, obtain, I guess we could say. And, uh, and so here, uh, a little bit further down um, on the page here, he, he states that um, experimental sciences can only reveal um, uh, what is relative, so we can, it can only um, give a knowledge of, of relations. Um, but um, precisely because individuals are are constituted by their, their relations or the relations are, are constitutive of the individual. Um, therefore, we, we can have knowledge of the individual um, through uh, experimental sciences. Um, um, 
or at least uh, experimental sciences are um, are not um, uh, excluded from the individual in some uh, absolute sense um, as a, a, a phenomenalist position would hold. Uh, I have a question about the physical individuation. So what did, is that like uh, the emerging, uh, what, what exactly means here physical individuation is? Um, well, actually, that, that's basically the whole, um, this whole first uh, part of the book is, uh, is outlining what physical individuation is. Um, but, um, um, more uh, specifically, um, uh, the physical individuation is the process through which um, something uh, unindividuated, um, like the uh, the the sulfur example, uh, something unindividuated comes to um, take on structure, um, uh, like the crystallization of the sulfur. Um, uh, so we have a um, a potential energy which. Uh, um, allows for transformation of the system in such a way that structure appears. Um, uh, and that's the, the, the sort of paradigm of physical individuation. Um, and uh, as, he, as he puts it right at the end of that passage that we just read, um, this, uh, this role of being a paradigm means that it, um, uh, it Play, that, that concept itself plays the role of a, of a structural germ which can bring about individuation in other domains of knowledge um, which can uh, therefore um, move that, the, those other forms of knowledge into a state of greater stability. Um, so the, the physical individuation as a, a concept or the, the notion of physical individuation um, uh, itself brings about uh, a process of individuation in other domains of knowledge, um, and and that's what um, constitutes its value as a as a paradigm. So it has to do with more like a form and structure, like the change of a form and structure to generate some energy, potential energy. Is it? Isn't it? Um, not not to generate potential energy, but uh, it's, uh, it's sort of the other way around. It's so the potential energy uh, pre-exists in the system before individuation. Um, so in the uh, solution, uh, uh, the in the sulfur uh, liquid sulfur, um, it has contains potential energy, um, which is then uh, um, used in the transformation uh, into a, a crystalline state or into a structured state. Um, so the potential energy pre-exists before before the individuation process, and then uh, it uh, undergoes the the system undergoes transformation to in, into a, a structured state um, through that uh, the use of that potential energy. Yeah, you know it's very understandable, but at the same it's kind of a non-understandable because Simongno uh, seems to the uh, ensemble like a combination of the uh, form and the matter, and then try to understand the individuation uh, as the amalgamation of the form and matter. But the, here, physical individuation, this concept gives me an idea, like he's trying to differentiate the process, like uh, as, as, a, as a, in the level, at the level of like a form. So uh, 
in terms of like a change of structure, it 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 brings about some some other changes, something like that. So that's the part like uh, it's understandable and un un understand non understandable, something like that. Kind of a little bit confusing here. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll continue to to see more about the the process of physical individuation throughout the rest of this chapter. Um, but um, it's it's important also to distinguish between um, the the hylomorphic schema um, or the the technical individuation that we have in the the example of the brick, um, where we have form and matter, uh, the 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 relationship or the the imposition of a form onto a matter. Um, uh, we have to distinguish that from the uh, the true process of physical individuation, um, like in the example of crystallization. Um, so uh, it's this crystallization example that he wants to use as the paradigm, um, and and uh, the the hylomorphic situation is a sort of special case um, where um, uh, where we have something like a form and matter uh, that. Um, are different orders of magnitude, uh, and then we institute a communication between those two orders of magnitude. Um, uh, that's a, a sort of special case um, uh, and shouldn't be taken as the paradigm um, that other cases are compared to. It's the it's the crystallization example that we should take as the paradigm. Um, so when when we when you read physical individuation, you should always think of the crystallization example. Yeah. Um, so Angus had a, a, a good comment in the in the chat here about um, it, it's strange that the staple system is the model for knowledge, um, since um, the examples that we've seen of, of stable systems are the interior of the crystal um, and the the brick, and both of them are um, uh, characterized as being um, uh, past as being. Um, sort of um, results of individuation that are no longer undergoing individuation. Um, and yeah, so I think, I think that's uh, a good, um, a fair point to, to make, um, because I think if we want to characterize um, uh, knowledge um, or what, what makes something uh, uh, adequate knowledge as opposed to inadequate knowledge um, or approximate knowledge, um, I think the the adequacy um, is not strictly um, uh, uh, or is not exhausted by something like stability, um, because another aspect of what makes something adequate knowledge is precisely its capacity to its its uh, fruitfulness or something like that, um, a capacity to bring about transformation of of other domains of knowledge. So um, yeah, I think I think we could. Um, maybe push back a little bit on this point uh, and and see um, the capacity to undergo future transformation as being a part of what makes knowledge adequate um, um, rather than uh, something like a, a, a stable state as being the, the adequate condition of knowledge. Um, but uh, yeah, that would be an interesting point to develop more um, and, and see what... Um, how it fits in with uh, the rest of, of Simodo's system. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next, um, the next subsection here, um, which we won't have time to finish today, I don't think, but uh, it's, uh, we still have uh, 15 minutes or so, so we can get started. Uh, if someone would like to read the first couple paragraphs of this uh, subsection. Subsection two, individuation as the genesis of crystalline forms starting from an amorphous state.
Is this manner of envisioning individuality still valid for the for defining the difference of crystalline forms relative to the amorphous state? If energetic conditions were the only ones to be considered, the answer would immediately I think it should say immediately be positive. For the passage from the amorphous state to the crystalline state is always accompanied by an energy exchange. At constant pressure and temperature, the passage from the crystalline state to the liquid state is always accompanied by an absorption of heat. There is presumably a latent heat of melting for the crystalline substance that is always positive. If, on the other hand, structural conditions alone were required, no new difficulty would be presented. The genesis of the crystalline form closest to the amorphous state could be assimilated to any passage whatsoever from one allotropic crystalline form to another. However, when we consider the difference between a substance in the amorphous state and the same substance in the crystalline state, it seems that the preceding definition of physical individuation is applicable only with a certain number of transformations or specifications. These modifications or specifications stem from the fact that the amorphous state cannot be treated as individual and that the absolute genesis of the individuated state is more difficult to define than its relative genesis through the passage from a metastable to a stable form. The previously studied case then becomes a particular case vis-a-vis -vis this more general case. Um, should I just read to the end of this page, I guess? Or should we stop there? Uh, yeah, like, you can read the, next, the end of the page. Okay. The passage to the crystalline state from an amorphous state can be formed in different ways. A solution that evaporates until saturation, vapors that condense on a cold wall, sublimation, or the slow cooling of a melted substance can lead to the formation of crystals. Can it be claimed that the discontinuity between the amorphous state and the crystalline state is sufficient for determining the individuated nature of this state? Uh, this would be to suppose that there is a certain symmetry and equivalence between the amorphous state and the crystalline state, which is not proven. In fact, we indeed observe a stage in the variation of physical conditions, temperature change, for example, while the crystals are forming indicating that an energetic change occurs. But it is important to note that this discontinuity can be fragmented and not given en masse in certain cases, like those of organic substances with complex molecules. For example, para-azoxyanosol. Um, according to G. Friedel, these bodies, which are called liquid crystals by the physicist Lehman who discovered them, uh, present mesomorphic states that are intermediate between the amorphous state and the pure crystalline state. In their mesomorphic states, these substances are liquid, but present properties of anisotropy. For example, optical anisotropy, as M. Mokan has shown. On the other hand, it is possible to obtain the same type of crystals starting from a concentrated solution of melted liquid that is left to cool down or starting from a sublimation. 
It is therefore not with respect to the amorphous substance that the crystal consequently individualizes. The veritable genesis of a crystal as an individual is instead to be sought in the dynamism of the relations between the hylomorphic situation and a singularity. So here he's um, relativizing to some extent what he's discussed in the last subsection. Um, so uh, whereas previously we were looking at the relationship between one, um, one crystalline state of, of sulfur or whatever other substance, one crystalline state and another, uh, and how one state is uh, metastable with relation to the other. Um, but um, uh, here now we want to look at the relationship between the amorphous state of the substance and the crystalline state. Um, and uh, um, what, uh, what exactly that um, relationship is. Um, um, so here, um, as he says, we have to um, um, transform or, or specify the previous uh, understanding of physical individuation. Um, so we'll, we'll continue to see that um, transformation as, as we read through the rest of this um, subsection. Um, but uh, um, the 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 basic um, uh, the problem, I guess, is that we we can't treat the the amorphous state as an individual. Um, so that um, what we saw earlier was a, a relative genesis of uh, of um, of an individual through the, the passage from metastable to stable state. But what we're what we're looking at now, or what we're trying to understand now is an absolute genesis of an individual. So out of a, an amorphous state that is not individuated into uh, a state that is individuated. Um, and um, so he, he gives examples uh, of, um, uh, or, or he raises the question uh, in that next paragraph of um, the discontinuity between uh, amorphous and, and crystalline state. Um, so is, is the individuality of the crystalline state or is, is what makes the crystalline state individual the fact that it's discontinuous uh, from the amorphous state? And um, he, he says that um, this is not, uh, or this is a hypothesis that uh, we can't prove uh, or that can't be, that hasn't been proven yet. Um, and he points out that we do, in fact, um, uh, observe certain uh, intermediate states um, like these liquid crystals that he um, that he points to. So they they're liquid in the sense that they can flow um, like any other liquid, but they're um, they have this property of optical anisotropy, um, meaning that um, uh, light waves don't pass through it in the same way in all directions. Um, whereas something like water. Um, uh, light waves will, will just pass through it uh, in the same direct in the same uh, in the same way uh, in all directions. Um, it's always it's isotropic in in, in that sense. Um, whereas these liquid crystals um, have different um, directions within them, uh, so light passes through it in a different way depending on what angle it's uh, it's going through the the substance. And uh, yeah, as Angus has pointed out, liquid crystals are are used in uh, uh, computer monitors, LCD monitors are liquid crystal displays. Um, 
So this has a, a, a technical um, value to it as well. Yeah, I guess my diff the difficulty I have with this section is I don't really understand why we're considering these, uh, maybe I misunderstood what you were just saying, non, um, but these uh, sort of in-between states um, or why the existence of like these uh, liquid crystals problematizes what we were talking about earlier. If we're only taking it as kind of a, you know, the kind of crystallization we were looking at earlier is just kind of a paradigmatic just one way of looking at, at individuation. Um, I guess I don't see why it, why it matters that it holds for all kinds of crystallization. Um, so there's, there's two points here, I think, um, that we have to um, set out. Um, so there's first, um, first is, is the, um, the relativity of the previous example. So in the previous section, uh, subsection, we were looking at, um, the passage from one uh, crystalline form to another uh, in uh, these allotropic substances so that uh, we had one form is metastable in relation to another because it's um, uh, subject to transformation, uh, further transformation. Um, so that, uh, in that sense, it's a relative individuation because it's, it's um, passing from one individuated state to another individuated state. And then now he wants to um, uh, examine what happens uh, if we instead want to look at um, uh, an absolute uh, uh, an absolute uh, genesis of individuation um, so that uh, we're passing from something which doesn't have the characteristics of a, an individual or, or the quality of an individual um, the amorphous state of, uh, of the, the substance uh, passing into something that does have a, um, a quality of individuality. Um, so uh, that means that um, we're, we're dealing with a, a more general problem um, or the, the problem is at a, a higher level of generality um, rather, than, rather than just being a, a, a relative individuation, we're dealing with absolute individuation. Um, so that's the first uh, the first point. So that's that's why we're sort of um, going back to the drawing board here in this subsection. Um, and then the second point is um, the you know what these liquid crystals are doing here, or or what's the relevance of these liquid crystals. Um, so the, the the where it intervenes in in the the. Um, I want to say dialectic, um, even though that's not uh, a term that Simon Don would use. Um, but in the the, the uh, evolution of the concepts here, um, so uh, if we start from this problem of um, how uh, absolute individuation or the absolute genesis of individuality occurs from an amorphous state to a, a, a crystalline state, um, one one answer to that question could be that. Um, the, the discontinuity between um, uh, between the amorphous and the crystalline state could be um, what accounts for that individual individuation um, so that um, uh, you would have a, a discontinuous transition uh, from amorphous to uh, crystalline state um, which would which would be the the sort of um, boundary of individuation um, but then he 
these liquid crystals um, show that that answer doesn't work. Um, so there isn't, in fact, a, a discontinuity um, between the uh, amorphous state and the crystalline state because we have these liquid crystals which are intermediate between the two. Um, so uh, one possible answer to the question of, of what constitutes the individuality of the crystalline state as opposed to the um, unindividuated amorphous state, one, one possible answer to that question has, has been raised and now excluded um, because of these liquid crystals. Um, and then we'll have to see further uh, as we proceed through this subsection, what um, alternative answers there are. So it sounds like with this new problem of the absolute genesis, um, so it sounds like a distinction that's um, in the background here is between the metastable state and the amorphous state. It seems like those are distinct in an important way. Um, because it seemed like the metastable is implicated in the relative genesis, right? Uh, whereas the amorphous is implicated in the absolute genesis. And I suppose maybe the, the upshot is that the metastable state has some degree of individuation or is kind of on the way um, of individuation, whereas the amorphous, it hasn't even begun. Um, I think I would um, state that a little bit differently. I think um, I think they, um, yeah, Angus. I think I think you're right um, in the in the chat there. Um, I think the um, the uh, amorphous state is metastable um, uh, as well. Um, so you have metastability both in the case of the uh, relative uh, genesis and in the absolute genesis, um, but. Um, in the case of relative genesis, you, you starting from, uh, as you said, uh, um, Al Dreams, you, you start from something that already has the character of uh, individua individuation or individuality um, uh, uh, to some degree. Um, so you start from uh, a form which already has that, that characteristic of individuality, um, but it's not fully individuated, so it's, uh, it's uh, still metastable. Um, uh, and then uh, you have a passage to uh, um, a further degree of stability. Um, uh, whereas in the case of absolute uh, genesis, we're starting from a, an amorphous state, which also has the property of metastability. Um, uh, but then um, uh, undergoes a, a process of individuation and, and results in a, a, a more stable state. Um, so there, there's metastability in, in both cases. Um, at the at the outset, um, uh, that and then undergoes the system undergoes uh, transformation uh, through that genesis, uh, whether it's relative or absolute. Okay, um, so we're just about at time, um, so uh, I think we should probably stop here for today. Um, so we'll start from where did we get to? Yes, yeah, the top of seventy nine uh, next week. So thank you everyone for uh, your contributions and for participating and I'll see you all next week.